Hi folks, thanks for listening. This is Will You Be My Friend? Conversations about making a life while making art and other things. In this episode, I sit down with an old friend of mine, Ian Garrett. Ian and I have been friends since doing theater together at Rice University. Um, He is currently the assistant or an assistant professor of sustainability and design and theater production and administration at York University in Toronto, Canada. He was in town in Austin for a conference and it was great to see him and it was so fun to sit and talk to a dear friend who is, by the way, incredibly intelligent. And um, our talk really gets at something that I hope this podcast is doing in some teeny, teeny, microscopic kind of way. Um, Ian talks about the, we talk about the measurable positive effect and effects that result when we as a society put the arts at the center of our communities. And there are ways of measuring this. It's, it's real. The arts have a positive effect on communities and society. And one of my hopes in doing this podcast is that listeners will start to have a more robust idea of the value that artists have in our society, Um, that we're not relegated to be labeled as weirdos or people who just want to do fun things for a living or people who don't want to be in the adult world or people who shouldn't be paid for what they do, Um, but that through exploring the journeys of and the day-to-day lives of working artists, the circle of people that value and support the arts and art makers can continue to widen and widen and widen and widen. Yeah, and so we talk about that some, and it made me think about, well, that's a little bit about, that's that's why I'm doing this, um, partly. So, you know, if you have someone that you think might get a little bit out of listening to this podcast, and it might inspire them to go see a play or go to an art museum or go to a, you know, book reading or something like that, share it. Please share it. Um, You'll probably be smarter a little bit after this episode. I certainly was. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Will you, will you be my friend? Yeah, I'm going to get you. Um, So bulbous. What? It went. I know. This is my very. I thought you were going to bring microphones. I forgot to ask you. Oh, I forgot to bring them. Yeah, I forgot to borrow one from my friend last night. Anyway, someday I'll have a microphone. Is it going to be okay? Um, it's going to be great. And your phone's ringing. I know. Is that on your watch? It is. It's on my Fitbit. It's an eight hundred number. Um. So actually, I didn't write this out as one of my questions, but it is a question. Do you consider yourself a futurist? I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't either. But so, so what does that mean? Should we look that up before I answer that? Should we? Um, should we well, you can tell me what you think it means, and then uh, you tell me what you think it means, and if you're one, well, I look up. Oh, so it's like it a quiz show now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So, like, when I think of the futurists, I think of like the Italian art movement that looked at the mechanization of process. Like that, that, so this is the art historian in me Okay. that's like thinks about that. But then at the same time, I'm like, is the question really about like thinking about the future? Cause like, like the, the, the Italian art movement of the early 20th century 
No, I don't consider myself one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, how about this definition according to the internet? Okay, Um, thanks, internet. A person who studies the future and makes predictions about it based on current trends. Oh, yeah, I've even got paid to do that once. What? Okay, so are you officially... So, I guess I'm professionally a futurist. Uh, Well, so what is that... What did you get paid to be a futurist? I I was... uh, Americans for the Arts paid me uh, money. Mm Mm-hmm. As 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 per the custom, is this a lobbyist group? Uh, sort of. Oh. Uh, but they they were uh, they put together a book last year that was about projections about various topics within the arts, mm-hmm. and I got commissioned to write a monograph about arts, the environment, and sustainability. What did you write about? I wrote about uh, three emerging trends that would impact the arts over the next five to ten years in the realm of uh, sustainability. Uh, one was essentially the Internet of Things, which was uh, to look at how things like the box office and the building systems and rehearsal schedules and all of that, that at some point there'll be some sort of management system that mm. will allow you to like create a very efficient machine of a cultural facility uh, uh, because that's one of the big issues environmentally with cultural facilities that they're built around maximum occupancy mm. um, and don't scale down really well. So when you have like five people doing a rehearsal in a theater mm. meant for 2,000, and you still have to cool it with a system built for two thousand. Uh, we uh, that was so that was one topic. Another topic was uh, looking at um, uh, looking at uh, movement of populations like climate refugees and how that's going to change the the the, um, the makeup of our communities uh, and what's going to happen with that culture because there's you know especially indigenous cultures which are sort of on the the forefront of this who are in like intrinsically tied to place but only make up a five percent of world population that a lot of them are going to be displaced and like how do we preserve like the, the aspects of that culture like it's going to change and so it was being mindful of that and that coming change and then it was individual change to this idea of um well, the, like, of psychoteric ideas around, like, like the ideas of how the earth affects the mind. So, like, in a changing climate, there's this idea of soul nostalgia, which is, like, a nostalgia for a previous environment without moving. So it's, like, homesickness without leaving home. <laughs> and and uh, so that we'll have to start, like, that will be a, an area that the arts will have to start coping with. Hmm. Um, that sort of, like, change and shift as people like places get hotter or colder or more extreme or wetter or drier. Does that have to do, I'm going to also go and turn off the AC. Um, does that have to do also with like how a city can change? Does gentrification Mm -hmm. apply to that nostalgia Uh, as well? I think that there's, yes, I think that, so the, the, the word was developed by this philosopher, uh, named Glenn Albert, who's uh, has a whole like lexicon of psychoteric words like that describe these different. I think you have to be a futurist if you use <laughs> the word psychoteric. I mean, I've never heard that word before in my life. So <clears throat> words that affect the like the relationship between mind and place on the planet. So like your relationship, mm-hmm. your like mental relationship to your environment. Uh, and so I think he may have also coined psychoteric to like group these words together, um, but or somebody did. But the the big one was soul nostalgia. So the idea, and he's a he's Australian. So this idea was he was doing like sociological research or anthropological research in like Perth, 
And the climate in, in Australia has been changing rapidly. It's been getting hotter. So he'd be recording these effects of people whose idea of place, of where they lived and how they conceived that, would be changing. And they'd feel like essentially homesick. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't have moved. Uh, they wouldn't have left home. Mm-hmm. And so that extended. So I think that it got, yeah, it, it also happens uh, to, uh, to a city. Yeah, because, like, you, you know, you have people who have been in Austin for such a long time that are like, oh, it's so, you know, I miss the old Austin. Old Austin, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know if I'd apply necessarily soul nostalgia to it, though it seems like the, the right sort of thing, like homesickness without leaving home because the place was home. I think that's still nostalgia because that's like, a created change as opposed to like the actual environment, mm-hmm. like the, the, the natural environment that's completely outside of human can like control or well, entirely I, I in mean. human control, <laughs> but like not the built environment right. of like, we and, put a street here and it's and like, Oh, traffic. It's soul nostalgia. Soul nostalgia. So S O L A S T A L G I A. Okay. Soul nostalgia. Yeah. There's also like a sort of ambient Royksop song called Soul Nostalgia. And I listen to it, Royksop, I like quite a bit, but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know the connection of that song to the word. I just listen to it a lot and I'm like, I need to, like, if I just listen to it again, I'll figure out what It's the because you're a futurist and it just like, well, in the future <clears throat> we'll all come together for you somehow. Yeah. Um, I just have to dream it and I can be it. Yeah. Um, you also use, you use so many big words and people you keep s- say that about huh? me. Well, you do. And you <laughs> use them in real, and I've known you for a long time and you've always used big words. And, um, you say that that's the art historian in you. Um, so tell me, tell me us about like the different parts that are in you. There's art historian, there's I former architect student. And I've got a, I'm glad I've got a... you still have your spleen. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so what does that mean that's the art historian in you? <coughs> Live. <laughs> Live! <laughs> I will, I want to make off to, in case you want to edit that out. Or you can leave it in so we can talk about it's how you want to edit it out. This is long form. Long form? Yeah. Watch out for copyright, because that is a, there's the long form podcast, like, TM. It's not that! You might want to edit that one. Okay. too late. So I will answer as though I were being interviewed so that you'd have a good place to start again. Okay. So uh, I come from um, a multitude of backgrounds. Disciplines. Disciplines, yeah. There's, I, um, I, uh, so we know each other uh, because we were students at Rice. This is true. University. Not like a plate of rice in front of a, there's a lot of people there that are confused about that. Um, They still don't know. (laughs) So we were students at uh, Rice University together, and I went there um, and moved to Texas to study architecture. I had always... <laughs> I burped a little bit, so I had to pause. I thought you were <laughs> No. I gave you bubbly water. <laughs> you gave me bubbly water, and I, I burped a little bit. Uh, so, uh, uh, so I paused. Um, so I moved from... I grew up in Los Angeles... Uh, my parents, for a good part, both of them, for a good part of my childhood, were in the entertainment industry. Neither of them from Los Angeles. My mom's from New York. My dad's from Northern California. His family's from the, uh, North Carolina. 
And uh, the, so they moved to California to pursue different parts of entertainment. My dad did, uh, like, behind-the-scenes directing video work uh, stuff. Uh, my mom was an actress and then did some behind-the-scenes stuff. She had this great job that doesn't exist so much anymore, uh, where she did the still photographer, uh, still photography for mm-hmm. when something was shot on video because you couldn't pull publicity stills for, like, things shot on video cameras because video cameras weren't great. And so she'd, like, walk around next to the cameraman and snap things. Did she do casting also? Or did I make that up? I don't know. Not that I know of. I think she did casting. <laughs> okay, that's possible. <laughs> she did a lot of things. Um, so for the... Uh, so when I was growing up, like, the we were, like... The, the blue collar of the entertainment industry, like people who just had jobs that mm-hmm. were like part of that industry. Um, and, uh, and, and I did not want to go, like, I was like, I want to be my own person. So I didn't want to go to New York because I thought, like, oh, everybody goes to New York. This is like a theme in my life. I was like, I didn't, I took French in high school specifically because I'm like, oh, everybody takes Spanish. Like, I was, I had like, had a proto-hipster mentality. So you're a contrarian futurist. <laughs> yes, a contrarian futurist proto-hipster <laughs> in high school. Uh, you and really so, were one of the first. You and uh, John Bashir. Oh, John, yeah. did you listen to this podcast ever? Y'all were the first hipsters I knew. Uh, yeah. Um, so I didn't want to go to New York. I didn't want to stay in Los Angeles. I didn't want to stay in the Los Angeles area. Like, I wanted to go away to college. And... And at some point, like, I had always been involved in the arts of, a, of, of lots of variety. Um, I had was, took music lessons, I did visual arts, and, um, I had stayed away from the performing arts, like, almost entirely. I nearly avoided, like, the plague, because um, it's like, that's, I don't want to be defined by what I did. So I didn't apply to any schools in the, the greater Los Angeles, well, the closest was Santa Barbara, uh, where I applied for painting. And, and, but other than that, it was all, like, I was going to have to move. Mm-hmm. And I decided at some point, because I was like, what do I want to major in? I'm interested in psychology. I'm interested in the arts. I'm interested in engineering. Uh, I'm interested in physics, all these things. And at, at some point, I was like, oh, I should study architecture. And so I went to Rice to study architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which has a kind of unique undergraduate program, Right. Like it's a, or at least when we were there, wasn't it a six-year? Yeah, like so video? it's a direct accept program for mm-hmm. those who are in academic administration. They'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, all, uh, half so of you. You go in declared uh, mm-hmm. in into the program, so you don't declare it after your first or second year. You declare right away, uh, directly accepted into, and you start in a studio sequence, and it's a professional program, so it's uh, five years of on-campus, and, and to be able to sit for your architecture licensing exam in most states, I don't, I don't know if it's universal, I think in the U.S. it's universal, you have to do three years of internship, mm-hmm. uh, an entry-level position, and so they build one of those years into, in between your fourth and fifth year of classwork, so it becomes your preceptorship year, so it takes six years to, mm-hmm. to get your bachelor's of architecture. So I... Uh, ended up going to Rice because A, it was a great program, and B, the financial aid package was really good. And so I was like, okay, sure, Texas. Um, I had, like, um, my mom's best friend is from Galveston. She's like, you should look at Rice. And then another really good friend of mine from, through junior high and high school, I was like, oh, yeah, you should, like, that seems like a good place. So I had, like, like, my dream school at the time was, 
RISD, Rhode mm-hmm. Island School of Design. Uh, I could not in any way, shape, or form afford RISD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Rice came in with an awesome package, and I went to visit, and I was like, oh, this place is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's got that, uh, it's very, it, at the time, it was even smaller than it was now. It was, like, the smallest school that I, like, it was smaller than my high school, mm-hmm. so far as yeah. uh, uh, students. And so uh, I went there, and thinking that I was going to be an architect, by, like, end of September of my freshman year when I needed a work-study job I got a job in the box office at Hammond Hall that's right I forgot that (laughs) uh because it paid well and like so there's an interesting story of why that position even exists like so they opened this new humanities building and they commissioned this choreographer who did large-scale site-specific work to do like the opening event for Uh it Stephen Koplowitz who comes back later in my life um, hold, so this was your freshman year was my your you were a year ahead of me right sophomore okay yeah your mm-hmm. sophomore year yeah, yeah okay and so they needed to sell they wanted to sell tickets ahead of time mm-hmm. you can do pre-sales for tickets with credit cards and the the like for whatever reason the shepherd school of music didn't want to deal with it huh and so they was like okay well we've got a box office that sells tickets associated with the theater so let's start a work study position and we'll sell these tickets so no way i was just hanging out in the box office lot and the rice players would come by and be like hey how's it going and i was working for trish rigdon Mm -hmm. who was the assistant or associate program director at the time and was teaching design I was like oh you, you're studying architecture you should come and check out stage design and so by the and by the end of that year I was like had 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 my finger and everything uh-huh. and um uh, I moved <laughs> I moved away from Los Angeles to get involved in the entertainment industry <laughs> and I did that and did both for a couple of years I got really invested in theater because uh, I came in with some AP uh, credit, I was already like doing. I was an architecture arts history double, so I added on a, 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 a possible theater major. And then in um, my junior year, so your senior year, uh, I like uh, so I had a cancer scare where it, I it looked taking like a walk a, with you. Yeah, where I thought I might have. Uh, I mean, a doctor thought that I, it wasn't just like. <laughs> My own thing. Um, a doctor thought that I might have thyroid cancer because I'd always had thyroid uh, disease since I was like 13. Uh, it ended up being like a clerical error. They're like, <laughs> so, they saw you. on an ultrasound, they wrote centimeter instead of millimeters. So they thought that I had like a two centimeter tumor and it ended up being a two millimeter like little module that ended up going away. That's fun. Which I found out when I went in for the biopsy. It's for a needle biopsy where they stick a needle in your neck and like they put on the stuff and where. Like, the needle is right there. <laughs> this needle is like, this is going to suck. And, and like, we can't find anything. And so I left. <laughs> and ended up not having cancer. But because I was like, if I had had thyroid cancer, I was going to have to take time off of school. And because of the studio sequence for architecture, I was going to be back a year. So I was adding on a year to anything. I can just join up the next term. And I was getting out a sequence with the class that I had. And I had, had a, like a... a uh, uh, a love built a love hate relationship around that course of study, 
And I was having this conversation with my mom. She's like, the only thing you like you talk about positively consistently is working in theater. Why aren't you just doing theater? And I didn't have a really good answer for that. So I changed around. I went to a non-professional architecture degree. So my degree is in architectural studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I finished the art history degree because it was nearly there anyway. And with, pretending that the, they were going to pass this BA in theater, I did all these classes that were supposed to be part of it. So I didn't even know that was like a conversation when I was still there. It was like starting, it is now. Yeah. Like it took another like five, seven right. years. Like there was no way that I was going to so, As you said the other day, we all completed degrees <laughs> that we didn't even get. That we didn't get. Theater. Everybody got yeah. like their engineering <laughs> degree in theater and their English degree in theater and got an architecture degree in yeah. theater. Yeah, electrical engineering and theater. Yeah. yeah, and people went on to do interesting. So, um, and you were doing like lighting and lighting design, stage design. Yeah, there was yeah. like a show Producing. at the beginning of my sophomore year where I was like, uh, where the, we had a meeting at the beginning, and I'm like, we need a master electrician, and our our classmate friend Shannon was like. I did it for the last show. I'd like to do something different. I know how to do it. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it sounds cool. <laughs> and so, and then I just got really interested in lighting. And I have this idea in my head that lighting is closer to architecture than like set design is. And so it felt very architectural to me and dealing with this idea of like, you know, I had this idea in my head that like a lot of our architectural conventions are based around our relationship to light and the suns and solar relationships. And so I was like, oh, that's just lighting. Then. Mm-hmm. And so I was just enamored with working with light um, and lit everything. <laughs> <laughs> like I left thrice with like dozens of shows under like, my belt. You like lived in the ceiling of all the different. Yeah. Uh, um, Hammond actually had a slightly terrifying because the air handler in there would kick on. I remember one time I was up in like this, going up into the ceiling and like the air, I was walking by the air handler and it kicked on while I was there. And I do not remember anything except for being on the stage. It's like, it was terrifying. I was like, some giant thing has opened up a crack in the universe and I'm going to get swallowed. Um, but I wasn't, uh, which was good. And, and so I decided that I was going to do focus on theater. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I got really involved with like student organizations and the Rice Players, which was the theater group, and doing leadership there. And I was really interested in arts administration and organi- organizing things and producing events. Like I just had a sort of an aptitude for that. In my senior year, I was working full time at the same time as, as finishing up school at Stages, which is a, 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 a not-for-profit professional theater. I was running group sales for a year there, and I was, like, really into that. And then once, as we were getting towards graduation, figuring out what I was going to do next, I went and did an internship where I spent a season with the Williamstown Theater Festival. And then I lived out of the suitcase for the better part of a year. There's, like, some timing things where I, was like, had this internship at the public that I was like sort of in and out for um, where I got to work on some cool stuff uh, and at some point in that year I was like oh, like, oh I'm, I'm really doing this to gain experience so that I'm prepared to go to graduate school because I think I need to go to graduate school for design and or management mm-hmm. and I should start applying so that I can get the practice to do it and ultimately the only school that allowed me to do both concurrently was mm-hmm. CalArts. And it was also the school that I had sort of been pushed to with sort of my background and divergent interests across the arts and architecture and design mm-hmm. and theater. And our, the director of our theater program, uh, Mark Ramont, had like connected me with 
uh, a designer that he had worked a lot who had just graduated, who is now Justin Townsend, who is like up for like 20 Tonys. Uh, like this year, like, and we're still, we're still in touch. Um, and he was like, yeah, I'll answer whatever questions you want. Cause he had just graduated. And I was like, oh yeah, this is the, this is like, I remember being in our house cause we lived together mm-hmm. and not you and Justin, you and me. Yes. Uh, and, and you weren't here at the time. I was just like looking at like grad schools or where I might want to go. And there was uh and the language for Cal arts was like, oh, I should go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I was looking at other things. Like I was looking at doing a BA honors the previous summer. I had gone to the Prague Quadrennial because someone told me I should go to the Prague Quadrennial and got like a grant through the theater program to do it. And I was like, oh, you like there's an expansive world of theater design and architecture out there mm-hmm. that like I don't necessarily understand from just being in the U.S. And CalArts lined up with all those, so I uh, I applied. And then I got in. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really expecting it. And they were, they were really excited about me wanting to do both programs and coming from divergent backgrounds and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and I, I went through there, uh, coming back to Texas at one point to do an internship at Diverse Works. And, and I was in the producing program and the lighting program. And then when I got out, I just sort of went, but, I, but since then, I've been, I, I started going between both things. But in my last year, I co-founded an organization called the Center for Sustainable Practice in the Arts uh, because I had all this sustainable building training that had been embedded with an architecture school. And I just started applying that to what I was doing within theater. And it's turned into like a research career. And so... Um, I was going between, like, I'd freelance a lot, I'd do a lot of design, I'd do part to full-time arts admin, lots of communications work. Um, uh, I was, you know, an early adopter to social media, so overlapping between the marketing experience that I got from, like, that's who supervised me in the box office while I was working full-time in in school, so it was an easy jump into that. And then people are like, you're young, you know this, you know how to use... You can turn on a computer! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that actually defines a lot of my professional advancement is getting someone's computer to turn on and do what they want it to do. I have this habit of like, like someone's like, here, figure out how my computer works. No, and I then, when you were coming over, I was like, oh, you could probably <laughs> fix this thing. And usually I do nothing. I just like do it. I was like, no, I don't do anything. People, I, I was like, the computers just cooperate with me for now. I'm waiting until like I get to the point. Like I'm, I'm very nervous about that point in technology. And it's like, I have no idea how it works. Um, but so I was doing that. And then uh, like this, there's this sustainable art movement that has developed and just from not stopping to do it, um, I ended up like going to lots of conferences, speaking on it, writing about it. And now I'm a assistant professor of ecological design for performance at York university in Toronto. In Canada. Yes. It's much colder than every place that I've mentioned before. Um, <laughs> it's true. At Pro- at Prague's cold sometimes, just not that cold. It was only there in June. Yeah. And, <laughs> it is not cold in June. No. Um, so what does sustainable, um, sustainable... Spit it out. Uh, what does sustainability mean? So, uh, when, so when I'm using the word sustainability, I'm talking primarily around, like, the big idea of sustainable development. Like, what we make things with? 
So it's all those and things. So in the in the early eighties, eighty three, the the UN struck this commission, the Brightland Commission, that came up with a definition of sustainable development, which was about looking at the human impact on the environment. And because uh, we all live in the environment, we're fairly dependent on it. At least you know. That's what you think. <laughs> like fair, okay. <laughs> um, that, uh, like, all of the world's economy and, like, the social issues, like, it ties into all of those things. So they all take place, like, all these conversations around economic equity and development and, and first, second, third world's relation. Well, I guess there's not much of the second world anymore, but um, relationships all are influenced by what was a growing acknowledgement that there was like a human, like a global human impact on the environment. Um, and so sustainable development was this idea that uh, of, of uh, looking at like figuring out ways throughout international development to meet the needs of the present without jeopardizing the needs of the future. So that ends up looking at environmental impacts of everything um, and the impact things have on the environment. That's what a lot of people associated with when you see it sort of in, uh, in, in isolation, but also in terms of like economic equity, um, social justice and all of those things. So they're all, and, and I believe that they're all intertwined. Um, like access to clean water is a big driver around like trade deals, you know, um, there's like fracking is an issue that touches on all of those issues. Like in so eco justice and social justice, like the idea of privilege and, and taking advantage of underserved or migrant or, or, or like peril imperiled communities mm -hmm. Uh, because they're not going to say anything or they don't have the money to fight you mm -hmm. like and then running like a pipeline or drilling or fracking or water issues and taking all of those away become environmental issues as much as they're social issues and those are being driven by corporations that are making money off of those things and so that's like sustainability for me is all of those things mm -hmm. um, so when it, the word gets used in terms of we're we're doing things around sustainability and people use it just to sort of mean environment. I was like, well, yes, but not just. And then uh, I do a lot of work. I'm I'm in Austin because I'm on the board for Dance USA. And so when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about sustainability of the field and sustainability of these organizations. And it's I'm like, yes, but not just mm -hmm. that. Like a lot of times someone says sustainability and they mean environmental issues. Sometimes they say sustainability and they really mean like fiscal responsibility mm -hmm. sometimes I say, uh, I say well people don't really use misuse in my experience sustainability all that uh, all that much in terms of social issues usually they're tied into one of those two things as mm -hmm. well but and so how does that um how do you bring that into the art world and how does that relate to theater making and art making so that's like, I became fascinated, because I came at it from architecture, where it's like, you can build a building, and, like, sustainability can be the central concept of what you've created. You can, like, find all these really great materials and build it in specific ways using building techniques and then feature all of these and, and, and be rewarded for that. And that's, like, I don't mean to be, like, I'm not in any way down on that. Mm -hmm. Like, that's awesome. 
but you can't necessarily do that in art. Like you can't just say like, no, screw this concept. I'm going to like, cause I'm going to make it out of bamboo. Like I'm going to use recycled, recycled cups at my performance. Yeah. Like that, Im- but that impacts like what you're making mm-hmm. and how you make it, which then gives it different meaning. And because you're talking about expressing meaning in some way, that's not like metric. That's not like definable. That's not necessarily like, this is the objective meaning of this thing. It's about the experience or about this, the subjective relationship to something that's like all of those things lend a, uh, a reading to it. So I just became super interested with this idea that if you're going to bring these ideas into the arts, you have to start thinking about them a little bit differently mm-hmm. um, because you have a different relationship to time. A lot of art, especially theater tends to be temporary uh, your relationship to concept, like like the the concept, the idea behind the art is has to maintain its primacy in the in the conversation. You can't like you could, but you shouldn't diminish it because you wanna you have to make it in a specific way. Like that's mm-hmm. gonna change the way that you're gonna make things. And then we don't have this direct relationship, one to one relationship to like the materials that we use or what we make things out of, like that has meaning in it as well, or sometimes it has no meaning and it's just about cost and because it's temporary that we, you know, whether or not it's a a set that we make out of wood and paint to look like stonework because no one's going to hire a mason to put Mm -hmm. a rock wall in a theater for two weeks. Um, That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we work with facsimiles. Uh, Whether or not it's that relationship to, to material or... Or other ways that we might work with it or that might imbue meaning into, mm-hmm. into, into the thing that's created. So all of those things became super, super, super interesting to me. Uh, there's probably a big word I could have used instead of no, saying I super really, three I times. Really like super, super. <laughs> yeah. that. Super duper interesting yeah. to you. Um, well, I was like, okay, so how do, we, how do we balance these things? I used the example of uh, if you were to create the most affecting piece of art that convinced everybody to change everything they were doing, uh, like went carbon neutral, et cetera, but it was like essentially a pile of burning tires, which is objectively a bad thing for the environment. Don't, <laughs> if you take nothing away from this podcast, don't burn tires. All right. Um, unless that's your art. And that's like the thing that it's going to be like, there's a value exchange that like it changes the, it changes the game that you're like talking about the value of a thing where it's like, Oh, there's this awful thing like, or like massive oil spill. Like if you, but, but then call it art and it's like, okay, well what's the value of it of art? And that becomes like a complicated subjective thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas you just did it because you're, uh, don't care about the environment or you're a jerk. I don't know. Is like, cause, cause it is sort of nefarious than, uh, then you'd be like, oh, that's bad. So um, you talk about, you know, or maybe we haven't talked about yet, but the ability to measure these things. Mm -hmm. So maybe that this is a good place to talk about indie convergence and what that is and how you're... Uh, How I'm involved. How you're involved with that and then what y'all are doing and how, what you're going to try and measure and how you're going to try and measure that. Yeah, well, first on the the measurement side of things, a lot of like what we've been doing with CSBA stuff, with sustainability stuff, is just figuring out how to measure things and talk about this value exchange between like, okay, the environmental impact is X, the economic impact is Y, and the social impact is Z. And there's different ways of thinking about that, like whether or not it's carbon footprinting or you're talking about like uh, above ticket 
average spending when people go to an event and in at local businesses mm-hmm. or it's about intrinsic impact and 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 community identity what's intrinsic and, impact is uh, uh is intrinsic impact is like the meaning is me- is is measuring the meaning that art gives an individual or community like the establishment of creating identity and opening up to discussion. And there's a lot of good methodologies for researching that and not quite quantifying it, but being able to measure it with uh, coming out of like somewhere from some stuff that started with the Rand Corporation and now it's with Wolf Brown and some uh, some others about like going into communities and talking about like what the art is actually doing in Mm -hmm. the community. That's not just like test scores. Right, but it's like, oh, this... We wouldn't saw this play, and this inspired this conversation at your dinner table, sort of like is or, that a so like, measurable it, value? Like one of the one of the things that gets measured that we point to is that like if uh, like depending on on different aspects of like a play, mm-hmm. like um, I think Lynn Nottage they they use uh, ruined mm-hmm. uh, Nottage play of uh, like doing that in two different communities mm-hmm. and looking at like the makeup of the community that engages with it, the types of conversations that they have, their future engagement with that theater. Um, and then it's like, you measure it with things like, I think it's one of, uh, one of the statistics that came out of it is that based off of connection, uh, or based off of connection to the content of it and like being able to identify yourself for an issue that you care about within there, people were able to report like twice the perceived value of the, of, of the performance mm-hmm. or that some percentage is like 40% are able to articulate a, a, like a, a, a question that they have about this or about this issue that they might not have been able to before because of the, the play. So they become more con- uh, conversant in the topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, those sort of metrics of like, how do you, how does it impact you when you're thinking? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of interesting ways of, of looking at that. So to, to bridge that into the indie convergence. So in, in 2008, um, uh, my friend actually, the same friend from middle school and high school, and I was like, you should take a look at race. Oh, really? Yeah. She's had a, a, a significant impact on my life um, in ways that I hadn't even thought about until right now. So if, if Dara Weinberg is listening to this, thanks. Um, so she had, she used to be um, Bill Rausch's uh, assistant mm-hmm. uh, when he moved up to Oregon Shakes. He was the artistic uh, director of Oregon uh, Shakes. Yeah. And so she went up, because she was working with him when he was leading Cornerstone, which mm-hmm. he had founded in Los Angeles that was doing like community-engaged work. And mm-hmm. so he went up to OSF, to Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and she went with him for at least, I think it might have just been the year. And while there, um, met a group of people, and it's Ashland, so there's not like, like people have a lot of, when they're not, there's a, they, they're very busy, but it's a destination theater, as a smallish town so they had a lot of time in which to like they would experiment with things so uh and they have a lot of outside companies coming as well so there was a dance company in resident called dance kaleidoscope which is from indianapolis and they had come and were doing a residency where they were performing on the green stage which is like a series of free performances they have on an outdoor stage on the on their campus and um and then another actor who was part of the company um 
the three of them became close friends and were like wanted to develop work and work, learn from each other. And then we're having this great time over the summer of 2007 mm-hmm. uh, during that season. And then when they were all off contract, ultimately, they're like, okay, is there some way to replicate this? Mm-hmm. And the only person who knew that we're living next was the dancer who was from Indianapolis. So they decided to do this two-week convergence of people that wanted to experience this in Indianapolis, hence the Indie Convergence. And um, and when I was... I remember, I think the conversation happened, because I remember having it in the office at Diverse Works. So it was going to be happening in February, and my friend Dara called me, and they're like, we need someone who knows something about, like lighting uh, and I was like oh that sounds cool like this is the type of thing I've been into she's like yeah I thought you really like it and I was like okay well, I find a like a cheap flight uh, and like and they'll put me up okay and like things on the ground we get figured out okay we'll do something um, there's some lights there yeah there's some lights there and uh, so I went for like 48 hours and there weren't that many lights <laughs> and so it ended up being like a very guerrilla thing it was in this facility that was a partnership between the city of Indianapolis the University of Indianapolis and I think some other partners it was an old carburetor factory it had been turned into a live workspace that also had a classroom space like a community arts program was there and they had the this is the Wheeler Arts Center um, or Art, Wheeler Arts Community and they have the Wheeler Arts Community Theater uh, which at the time was free. Like if you were uh, an arts group and you got approval from this like board of of, of the the residents, you could use the theater for free. So we did that for years. It's in this part of town called Fountain Square, and over the course of essentially like eight nine years of being there. Uh, the neighborhood changed. It became like the hip neighborhood of. And this is you, y'all, having like a, a, a residency workshop series. Yeah, we've been doing this two two weeks. two weeks. We do a residency where artists apply. They apply with us. Uh, there's there's three different things that we work on. There's an umbrella project that somebody who's a veteran. Uh, often staff with the with the convergence will lead that everybody participates in. Artists apply with side projects, so something that they want to get started with it uh, to be able to get rehearsal time and the resources of everybody getting into the room together. Mm-hmm. And then everybody leads workshops. And you don't have to do... Everybody has to do a workshop and everybody has to do the umbrella. We've gotten to the place where not everybody always brings a side project, mm-hmm. especially people who are coming back another time because mm-hmm. um, we'll preference them in the, in the in the application process depending on what they want to do to get like an interesting mix of people into a room together. And so we would spend two weeks where we'd start with like a movement class at nine and we'd work until we were exhausted and we'd figure out times to if people would leave workshops that were open to the outer com- uh, to the community mm-hmm. and people would get like you know three hour chunks of rehearsal time and then and then we'd work towards and then we throw some tech on it mm-hmm. like we'd light it we'd do some video work we'd work through whatever ideas that we could as quickly as we could in the sort of pressure cooker so that on the last day usually the friday or saturday um we would uh, have an open lab uh performance mm-hmm. where we presented it like an evening of stuff. There was not ticketed. Mm-hmm. We didn't ask anybody for any money. We asked the audience to respond and hang out and talk to us to like give feedback to the artists. And it's evolved to this thing where like we've been doing that for uh, for two weeks. It's great because um, 
we've become part of the arts community of Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and uh, and especially now that people are sort of permanently based there, mm-hmm. uh, Robert and Caitlin, who are now married, the dancer and the actor are now uh, married. Darwin now like lives in Poland, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> so we see her every so often, but she doesn't come every year, uh, and. Uh, through making inroads across the community and we started to do events off uh, outside of this facility that we were using um, to uh, give talks and all of that. And Robert also got involved with a friend of his from a long time back, asked him to come help do, like set up this art residency with a project that she was doing in Haiti. And then through the course of events, he just ended up being like a enamored with the work they was doing, the community that they were working in, and became really involved in asset-based community development. And sort of like spending half of his year there, just working on um, like providing infrastructure or helping develop infrastructure, with the idea that it's, he's essentially there as a representative of the Indie Convergence to set up a convergence that mm-hmm. allows an artistic exchange between local Haitian artists and outside artists that 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 come in in the same sort of convergence model mm-hmm. and so it's just been growing in this last year we bought a, a building uh we moved to a different neighborhood because we've built all this experience and seen firsthand what it's like to be like the the pioneer arts organization that like goes into the community not that we were by any means like the driving force mm-hmm. but like there wasn't a lot there when we were there and now there's a lot there. So we've seen a change around us and we've seen our integration into the community and people's involvement with us and willingness to come and participate and our identity grow as a result of that and the other arts organizations that are based there. We didn't have a home there. Uh, they started charging rent for the facility. We, it wasn't always available when, when we needed it. We started mm-hmm. working like last year, we did half of it in another venue that was nearby and that becomes problematic. So it started to prioritize what we've been trying to do for years, which was to buy our own space. So mm-hmm. uh, we've bought a space that closed in January. It's in the middle of renovations right now. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's uh, We're going to be moving over the course of the next year or two to full like year-round operations. There'll be longer-term residencies available as part of it. We'll continue to do the intensive. We are going to be... like. Robert and Caitlin are going to live there. Like mm-hmm. It's going to become their house. <coughs> and so there'll be a communal aspect of it, too, where other um, artists who come in and do residencies, they'll be mm-hmm. living facilities there as well. And they're putting in, like, a podcast studio, and there's a flexible performance space and all the stuff that we were starting doing before, but what would we do if we were able to do it year-round? Yeah. So it's, a, again, about how to work with that community We've been doing sustainability research and like our actual impact. Like we've measured everything, like the trash that we've thrown out and the electricity that we've been using. Um, environmentally, we've been doing all this work in community engagement, and saw firsthand economic change. And so now we're like, essentially, we trained ourselves over the last decade on how to like be. Art to like an organizational artistic citizen mm-hmm. of a community, and so it's like okay, now that can we permanently do that, not just like dropping, not just like in and out. So we have that. We also, uh, I wasn't able to go down. I haven't been able to go down to Haiti, but um, led the the building of the the first Earthship 
amphitheater. So oh, built cool. a theater in this hillside of this land that a community member's like family had. So there's this whole thing where there was a facility, and then there was issues with like ownership and tenancy there. And but because of being in the community, it's like okay, it's an important resource for what's happening here. And so a community asset based community mapping uh, a development is where you look at what the community has as mm-hmm. opposed to like dropping in like here's some money or here's what's going to solve your problem it's like i think the slogan is uh don't just do something sit there (laughs) uh so like you see what's going on Mm -hmm. and what people have and what do you need and say like i'm not here to give you like just give you money like i'm here to just help what can i help you do Mm -hmm. um and uh that ended up being what we were doing there and it's Mm -hmm. turned into like an arts facility. That it's does an like, Earthship arts facility. I didn't. Yeah. Know that. So Robert went. I mean, that's he was a whole into, like, Was into Earthships. So yes. we went and got trained and how to build <gasps> them, and then went to Haiti. And there's people who are like doing training around Haiti and part of the rebuilding since mm-hmm. the, the the major earthquake uh, a few years back. And um, and Robert's like, well, if we need to make a new facility, like, these are the skills. Like, I'll train people how, oh like, gosh. we'll train people through making our own facility, which will have classrooms and have this amphitheater and have artist residencies and all that. And it's um, it's set up essentially in trust to, so there is, like, money never changes hands, but, like, there's investment into it so that it's set up essentially in in trust where like the indie convergence involved in the management of it and development of it for like 10 years and then it just is community owned like it's essentially community owned um because they're like uh, um robert and his relationships were like oh you're gonna stay and it's like no 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 i don't want to i don't want to like this is yours mm-hmm. um but i'm here to like what do you want to do mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll help and so he's been like helping connect people who are interested in this more long-term community-oriented, arts-oriented way of working with community uh, that have needs to to have a long-term, as opposed to, like, going on a two-week mission trip. Mm-hmm. We're very critical of people who go on a two-week, like, I'm going to go and dig a well. I'm like, well, did they need that well? Is that the well that they need? Like, yeah, now they have to deal with you. Right, now they have to they deal, with, deal you. with your absence. Right, yeah. <clears throat> which is a chronic issue within international yeah. development. Like, there's lots of good work that happens, but there's also lots of, like, do-gooding that happens yeah. that is, has unintended consequences. So we're hoping that that means that when we have this space up and running in Indianapolis, that it will be, like, a, a hub and serve. You know, it's not entirely unlike a lot of what sort of, like, it's organic, sort of like what's happened with Fusebox here. Like, mm-hmm. they step in where they are and, like... Their goal is, is is not to be a successful arts residency or a property holder or any of that. It's to build artistic community. Mm-hmm. You approach things differently when you mm-hmm. when you do that. Um, okay, so you do a lot of traveling. You do a lot of research, and you know it's based in the arts and building arts community, um, but you know, as you've been talking about, it involves so much, so many different things, you know, you know, uh, things that are happening on social justice fronts and environmental fronts and all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world. Um, with all of that, 
Do you consider yourself an optimist? Oh, yeah. Like, um, I sometimes, in a self-deprecating way, joke about how I'm just like, I don't... And now that I'm in Canada, where people are not quite as positive all the time, like, I'm like, is this a distinctly American trait? Like, I am, like, I have a biting, like, sarcastic sense of humor, and it tends to be dark, but ultimately, I, yes, like, uh, I get excited about things, and, am yeah, ultimately optimistic, like, try and think for the best. I, like, try and plan for the worst, but think for the best, mm-hmm. but, like, I feel like there's this, this, and why I'm involved in so many of these things and how they overlap is just, like, I think that there's so much possibility within them that, um, that like I I feel like compelled to to work on these things and whatever to whatever extent they contribute to the world mm-hmm. uh, to like do that because I'm like oh th- good things can happen which I also is entirely necessary to keep in mind because like I'm dealing with like natural disasters in third world countries and. Uh, the displacement of indigenous populations. I was like, if you don't say like positive, like there's an impact that the arts can have. And I think that there's documentation, the research that we've been doing is like, oh no, the arts can be a real, like they can be the driver of sustainable societies. If you like, there are ways to fight for them to be at the core of the way that we shape our society. <clears throat> and that if we look at them as our forum, if we don't look at them as like a thing that we do for entertainment, we look at them as like the the way that we experience the world outside of like when it has a, a, a unknowable quantities. Like if we can be comfortable with the 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 openness, the subjectness of that, in the name of like understanding each other and having conversations and figuring things out and working out problems through this mechanism of you know imagining what the world could be. And then expressing that back and not making it, like, linear um, and making it inclusive, then I think that, you know, like, that has the power of, of changing the way that, that we do everything. Um, I, I get down on the fact that, like, I'm like, it's not, like, easy. I don't just tell somebody, that I'm like, oh, yeah, let's just do that. The world would be great. Um, there's plenty of other but. Like, it brings people to the table and helps people express things that, like, they can't put into words. Like, language is very limited. So expressing, like, experience and being able to communicate that to somebody else, like, that's, that's like, the core, in my mind, of what the arts do. We have all this stuff that also says, like, it's good for the environment, it's good for the economy, it's good for these social issues... And it bridges between people. If we have it at the center, we fight for it to be at the center. And it's a much more interesting place to be in. The place being the world. Right. And so if, we're, if our fight is to nurture the arts so that they're at the core of our societies, what's at the core now? Is uh, consumerism? Uh, or? I, I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, so we haven't talked about this aspect of my life at all, but I'm a dad. It was my last question. Okay. But we can talk about that. Yeah, so, like, I think about that a lot. My question was not, are you a dad? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We were going to get to that. Oh, sorry, continue. Uh, But, so I think about, 
like I always thought about like the world because I always wanted to be a dad, but now I am a dad, and so I'm, like I, I think about like like what is this world that I'm really, like? It's it's cliche, but it like tosses us into a huge <laughs> existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I think a better way of like trying to think about what is the world that I'm living. Really, no, like what is the meaning of like everything? That's basically why I started this podcast so <laughs> I could have people come over and tell me to be an optimist and tell me the meaning of life. Right. So, so don't mess us up. <laughs> gonna ruin it right now. Uh, so, um, why did I bring up my son? Uh, I love bringing up my son. What's the core? Oh, of, okay. So we live in Canada now, and Canada is very like I refer to it as being very humane. Uh, like my wife had maternity. Like maternity leave is a thing. Like it's just supported. There's uh, universal health coverage. Um, uh, social services tend to be, um, like, functional. Uh, people don't really, like, yes, we pay a little bit more, essentially in sales tax. I don't feel like I pay that much more in income tax, but in sales tax. And I'm in Ontario, so it's different from province to province. But, um, and there's more funding for the arts. Like, I feel like it just, like, feels more human of being a place. And one of the big differences, like, uh, like I, I was always confused by this idea, like, you'd read in, like, a travel book, and it's like, this culture loves kids, like, a great place to bring your kids. And I was like, what is, it makes it different? And it's sort of like, in coming back from the holidays, I was like, oh, like, until a kid can articulate, like, I want that toy that I see there, like, can we, you must really give it, can I swear? Yeah, you, yeah. you can totally awesome. swear. The U.S. doesn't give a shit about somebody who can't spend money. And I don't, like, that sounds pessimistic or negative, but I feel like it's true. Like, I feel like I look at, like, I see it in traveling a lot, and traveling with my family is like, we got on a U.S. airline, and they're like, oh, fuck, a kid. And, like, everybody's, like, prepared for it to be awful. And my son's great at traveling. Like, we figured it out because we were doing it a lot. And he's quiet and entertained by things and everybody, like, more often than not, like, he's not, like, he's had moments. But more often than people are like, oh, I don't even know there was a baby on the plane. Or he was so, he was so well behaved. And, like, it was just, like, strategies for doing that. But doing that with U.S. carriers, like, even, like, the... Like, we get into the situation where it's, like, even the flight attendants are surly about, like, oh, you're just, like, adding this extra difficulty onto mm -hmm. it. And you can see it in the way that they're structured. Like, the way the frequent flyer miles are now structured, where it's all money-based. Like, yes, it's based off of, like, if you can consume, then you have value. Whereas, like, you go with another carrier, another place where it's, like, less at the center or more socialist or however you want to describe it. And people are, like, like, we got into a Lufthansa flight. And it's, like, here are some toys. And it's like, all right, is everything okay? Do you need this? Do you need that? We'll bring by extra food. Do you want anything else? Like, what? They're like, want to, can we hold the baby? Like, and whereas, like, I had to make sure on a United flight that he'd like, they didn't whack his head with the cart. And, like, he was like, just as he started to walk, we were on a flight once. And, like, so we wanted to walk up and down the aisle. And, like, we were on, I don't know, some other airline, some non US airline. And they were like, Oh, it's cute, blah, 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 blah. Like, no problem. Like, what do you need to get by? And then we were on the U.S. one, and the flight attendant was, like, two rows down. Like, this would be going faster. There wasn't a kid in the aisle. Like, loud enough for us to hear. I was like, that's, like, that's it. Like, he's, he's, like, up until a certain age, until the kids can, like, contain themselves and then, you know, go and spend some money. Like, they're not valued. 
which is why there's my opinion why there's like that's why there's no like universal like ch- uh, like childcare benefit or universal child like uh, parental leave like they're not prioritized because what, what, what you're not contributing like mm-hmm. having a kid doesn't contribute to the economy so yes i think that at the center it's very commercial which is very like boring like commerce is not like you know i mean there's lots of interesting stuff i think that there's actually a lot happening that is changing mass culture i think part of it has to do with access part of it has to do with people not putting up with shit about inequality anymore like people are calling people out on the like institutional uh, the problematic institutional inequitable structures that have been built up over hundreds of years like not necessarily maliciously like based off of like the understanding wrongly at the time of like this is like correctness um, and we have to dismantle all of that because it was wrong. Um, and, like, so people are being called out on that. People are valuing, like, we get to this anthropocentric idea where it's like the world is literally changing around us. Um, people have access, even if you don't subscribe to any of that, people have access to, like, the tools of making in a way that they didn't through, like, technology, democratizing the way that people can broadcast themselves or get the word out on things for, you know, better or worse. Case in point. Like podcasts. Um, good work. Democracy! <laughs> uh, that, uh, like, it, I, I, so personally, I don't believe in revolutions. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they work. Um, I can't point to a revolution like, yeah, that was the perfect solution for that. Like, <laughs> So, like, even the American, like, I'm not gonna, I, like, someone's, uh, don't, don't send me a death threat for this. I do live in Canada, so I could get away with this part, because Canada is, like, totally, like, we are not the U.S. They have, like, people joking, like, why doesn't the U.S. just annex Canada? And Canada's like, fuck get off. Get the fuck out of my backyard. <laughs> um, so, I'm safe uh-huh. behind Niagara Falls. Um, and, uh, but... Like, even the American Revolution, like, yeah, it, it spearheaded a bunch of stuff, but there was a, a lot of evolution that we're still going forward with, where it's like the Revolutionary Act was opening up for an evolution of allowing a democrat, like, allowing some form of democratic, republic-based change that, that didn't exist widely before. But that still happened, like, a bunch of, like, sure, France, they, they love a revolution. 19th century France was all about revolutions. But, they got it. Let's leave it to them. Yeah. But, like, lots of other places didn't require, like, a war mm-hmm. to gain independence. Um, and I, like, I'm... I get you. I like, I like, I like looking at it, um, I like what you said about, you know, evolution can be, evolution can be just as effective and it has to it's be long long term. Yeah. It's more long term like, than like, revolution. You know, I feel like you can't like you can't have progress without being progressive. And that progress is an evolutionary process mm-hmm. where it's like you know, there's this idea that in well, in anthropology, but like it comes up a lot in sustainable development of like the wicked problem, like the problem that is elusive to solving because it is complicated. Mm-hmm. It's not evil, but it's like, you know, uh, one of the 
examples that a lot of uh, that it's used a lot is like the New Orleans and Katrina. Like it wasn't just that like a storm showed up. Like that's the revolution. If anything, that's the revolution mm-hmm. storm. But it was institutional structures. It was physical infrastructure. It was changes in the environment. It was corporate development. It was corruption. It was, you know, it was a failure of all of these systems that were teetering on a balance and something came in and and catalyzed that. And you could say, like, oh, we should rebuild the levees better. It's like, okay, well, where's the money going to come from for that? And who's going to do it? And where's the workforce? And how are you going to protect those people? And why are you going to do that? And how are you going to do that when people don't believe that there's necessarily an imminent threat that they can see because they have a picture of how it has been, but they don't know about, like, the oil and gas industry, like, uh, moving the protective wetland, like, disrupting the, the protective wetlands around it for the affluent out of the the Mississippi, so, like, up until there's a point, you don't realize that it is, and then it's like, oh, fuck, everything's gone to shit, um, and, and, yeah, so, like, these things, these things that to be optimistic about are complicated and tied into things, so, and that's one of the reasons I like actually approaching it through the arts, there's a project they did in 2011 where we did a materials auction at the Prague Quadrennial. Mm-hmm. And we got, we coordinated with some number of countries. Like, 70 countries were there. They shipped stuff there. We wanted to mitigate the waste by, like, distributing it to local artists. And so we got them to agree to let us do this. We went to each of the countries. We cataloged what they had. We had a silent auction. We set up when it was going to go. But, like, 10 countries participated, so, like, one-seventh. Mm-hmm. And not everything went... And then there was a whole mix-up, and some of the stuff couldn't go in that. And, like, as an auction, it was an abject failure of, like, <laughs> redistributing content. But insofar as asking people to revalue these things and looking at the systems of waste within there, like, it brought people from the community in who could mm-hmm. use the stuff. Some of them got stuff. Some of them knew then to show up the next day when everything else would end up in the dumpster. Like, mm-hmm. we performed an action that, like, highlighted a system. And so... I like approaching sustainability through the arts because we can, if you if you change it to be an art project, you, you're talking about uh, questioning value systems and reflecting that back to those who participate in them. So that even if you don't like metrically sell all the units, that the fact that you were selling the units so that you articulated that they had value and articulated who valued them mm-hmm. and were able to get them into conversation with each other and perform that act is something that the arts can catalyze and allow you to do essentially really silly stuff mm-hmm. that, like, is not business, like, not smart for business, mm-hmm. but do it in the name of art, and you can do it, and then that allows you to, to, to reveal those systems um, and get people to rethink them. Mm-hmm. So um, how has being a dad changed you? I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time you've said that, though, since I've seen you this week, yeah. since you've been here. That's the first time you've said that. Um, it's hard, because in doing all those things... Like, the hard part about being a dad is that I did all these things. I continued to do a lot of things. And the time that... I, like, so I was a bit of a workaholic. And part of that was because I loved everything I was doing, so I was like, what do I want to do in my free time? I want to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I would still, like, find time. I used to find time to read. And... And like, go out and, like, do, like, not working things, but, like, I really, like, was passionate about these projects and do it, and I'm really passionate about being a dad, 
and being present and enjoying uh, my time with my son and being there and like engaged with him, which is very rewarding. And like my parents were really good about that. So I'm like, I want to, I want that. And Mm -hmm. I know that it's like, I know everything's finite and I know that there's a lot of issues in the world. So it's like, let's enjoy the time that we have together. So like, there's a lot of time, you know, we pick him up for, I do the mornings where I drop him off in the morning. So I don't get out of bed and like check my email Mm -hmm. or do that or go to my office. Like I like spend my time with him. We'll watch a show together. We'll eat breakfast. We'll play a little bit. We'll get dressed. We'll walk over to daycare. And like, this is a, a process that we go through and, like, we're engaged with each other doing that. And then after it gets picked up, whether or not I'm available, like, whether or not I get home in time to be, do the pickup with uh, my wife, or or she does it and then I get home and they're already home, like, that time until he goes to bed, like, I only have so many hours. Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, when you look at it, it's like two or three hours that I get to spend with him with uninterrupted time mm-hmm. in the day. And then, yes, I could be really productive during that time, but then... And then, like, so if he's asleep by 8, sure, in another time, I would work until, like, midnight or 1. Like, I'd work until I'd, like, focus on something, then, but he is up by 6. Mm-hmm. Like, he sleeps in to 6. So, <laughs> so I would be exhausted if I didn't go to bed. And I don't. And so I am often <laughs> exhausted. Uh, I didn't go to bed at the right time to 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 uh to be able to be up with him yeah as well so it's that sort of it's that sort of shift in like i'm working really hard and i like i have an amazing partner uh she's been and just in the last couple of weeks like i was always very organized about mind mapping all my tasks and like here's my checklist and the granular way to keep organized on top of all the projects that i would have to do my brain's not just there like just doesn't do it mm-hmm. the same way anymore I can't keep all the balls in the air. So um, my wife has been really amazing at like helping me think through and prioritize mm-hmm. in my handicapped uh, way. Um, and we've, you know, I mean, we're really, we've, we've always been partners in that way and now even more so because mm-hmm. um, we've both been creative people that work really hard on whatever we're working on. Uh, and especially now that, it's the the caring is a lot more equitable. Mm-hmm. Like there was a a long time where, you know, uh, he was breastfed. It's mostly mom. <laughs> it was like mom, mom, yeah. mom, and now like you know because he's he weaned him that. He's, and that. Like, he just turned two. Yeah, he turned two yesterday. Yesterday. Um, that uh, that that like we can equally care mm-hmm. for him and. Um, and give each other the time to like write or work on whatever projects we are because we're both working in like fairly demanding jobs full time. I'm lucky in that being a professor of something that is connected to a lot of my other work that I get to like, I'm encouraged to do all of that, but still like I bring my research into my classes, but Mm -hmm. like when I'm teaching like intro to lighting design, uh, or just like this, the, the standard lighting design class. Like, I get a lot out of it because I enjoy teaching, but I don't get a lot of, out of it. Like, I'm not lighting a show right. while I'm doing that, or working on another project while doing that. So, there's a lot of there's a lot of time that's not me generating content in these networks or working on my projects. Um, you know, forty percent of my time, according to my collective bargaining agreement. 
Yeah, contracts. Yeah, contracts. 40% of your time is teaching. Well, I think fatherhood seems to suit you very well. Uh, I, yeah. It's weird because everybody's like, how's, how's fatherhood? How's Miles? And I was like, my answer is always like, he's awesome. And I don't, like, I have no other, I have no idea how to answer that question otherwise. Like, yeah. just like, oh, he's who does. I mean, I do sometimes say, like, he's awesome. He's a shitty sleeper. But he's <laughs> awesome otherwise. I mean, you just sleep yeah. a little bit more. He'd be perfect. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, he's so, he's, he's smart. He's started to be funny and tell little jokes. Uh, but, or, like, play little jokes on us and, like, you know, he's engaged in the world, he's outgoing, he's game for trying things. He's recently become a little bit, uh, like, afraid of heights. Like, he, he will he will get to go walk up to a slide and be like, no, too high. <laughs> but, like, you see, like, his, his personality in, yeah. in there. And it's, like, it's, like, delightful. Like, I've been, like, a week ago today or, like, sometime last week, he just, like, we were walking and he counted the 16 and it's, like, his head is literally exploding because it's growing and filling yeah. with stuff. And then my head explodes. I was like, how did you do that? Where did that come from? How did you know that how numbers did, went that high? <laughs> how did you... You're just counting stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, he was in full. He, he, he was... He, um, he did the... AB, I started this video the other day. He did ABCs and just like... There's no Y and Z. We just stopped at X. We're good with X. Yeah, it's like X. <laughs> just silence. And you're like, and then he laughed about it. So I'm pretty sure it was a joke. He knew it was a new little stuff. I'm starting there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have to say the thing. Say the thing. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Ian Garrett. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. It doesn't really make okay, sense. Okay, say, say long time listener, first time guest. Okay, uh, my name is Ian Garrett. I'm a first, I'm a, I'm a first time <laughs> caller, long time guest. No. That's actually also correct. In this that scenario. is also true. Yes, uh, my name is Ian Garrett. I am a long time listener, first time guest. Yes. <laughs> will you? Will you be my friend?